Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you. Hello, how are you guys? Good, good, thank you. Um, if you could do me a favor and um, make me a moderator so um, so I can post the link and, and things like that. Um, so the way to do it is you click on my profile picture and then on the bottom there should be an option make moderator or something like that. Okay, I clicked on your picture. Um, I'm sorry, it's the person who starts the room is the moderator and then they have to assign other people. So can I go and come back? Then you can, I don't see any option here. I click uh, on your picture. When you cl click on my, all the way on the bottom, there should be view. Oh, oh, I got it. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, right. okay. Thank you. It. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. Can I see it now? Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, go. No, no, no. I'm saying, can you see it now? But I, I change it. I think yeah. the option. Yeah. Thank you so much. How are you today? Uh, good. Uh, I'm good. How are you guys? So, uh, good, seems. Good. So I shared the link to if someone other some other people wants to attend in my network. So maybe some few of them maybe coming in to attend. Great, with. wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I saw you shared it on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, let's see. A couple of people just message that how to get into this platform. Maybe that may be a tricky for them <laughs> to come over it. It's first time. Not many people are used to this platform yet. Yeah, um, oh, yeah, a lot of scientists that come here, it's the first time they use the platform. So, yeah, yeah. hopefully, but, they, I think, but I like the idea for sure that it's like free and people can surely go and come and if as long as they want, they can listen or they can they cannot talk or comment. But I think it's like right, nice initiative in terms of sharing of uh science, right? It's like a that's what we want to do. Yeah, exactly. So I like that it's public. So everyone that sees this room has the option to just join. And then in theory, also ask questions. But I usually check um, the profile. Um, so, you know, we know it's a real person, not uh, some robots, like some bot that just comes to destroy the room. Right. But um, yeah, it's uh, and then it's record. So if you look at the top, it says replace on. So um, people can then also listen to this recording. And then what I usually do by the end of the week is then to um, I, we made like from Science Society a Spotify account and the YouTube account. So I don't edit it. Uh, I'll just. Um, transform it into a file that you can upload on YouTube and on, on the pod oh, okay. platform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, I link it to the DOI. So it should help also with the altmetric score of the paper. Not everyone needs it, but you know, some people that come um, are interested in that. So I started doing that because some people ask for it. So. Right, right, right. And this is useful for them. Actually, if somebody wants, right, they can access it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and no data is like nobody's maybe going to share the secret data. So 
yeah yeah the, since this is public yeah nobody should do that yes yeah yeah so it's it's fine i guess so i i just one quick question so are am i going to share the slides or is it any option or just like we are just going to talk on our end as we did last time right that we can open and share the slides so the slide link to the slide is here on top of the room if you see above yeah yeah Yep. Yeah, so people can click on it. So it's helpful when you switch from one slide to the other to mention which slide number you're on. Uh, if people come late um, or they, for some reason, they are distracted for a little bit, it's easier for people to follow. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so. So I'm not going to say it. That's what I, I think I, I missed it from last uh, discussion when we have we met to just check the platform. I think I completely forgot if we are going to share or not. Like it's, <laughs> it's not live sharing, right? That's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. It's not a live. Um, so yeah, people has have to scroll through it by themselves. Yeah. So yeah, there is I think an app to do it, but then I have to ask people to download an additional app and to put the slides on there. So I, I don't, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's... you know, it's too much of a, of trouble. Yeah. Right. And that's not important for sure at the moment. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so I requested clubhouse. One can ask, uh, one can write the clubhouse team to um to add like features to the app so i requested since a few guest speakers told me to uh so that you can share your screen your screen mm -hmm. but um, until now they didn't <laughs> they didn't do that but hopefully in the future there will be an option for that oh that's okay i think so, so uh, five yeah uh, to give people time to arrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I can see some already there. So maybe we will wait five more minutes. And it's 20 yeah. minutes talk. I think slides are maybe more than 20 minutes. Yeah, I yeah. Try, I'll try to go a little faster maybe. And if somebody... But no, no, you don't really, you don't have to hurry. This was just like, hi, Frank, how are you? This was just to give you like some like what many people do, but a lot of people also go like for an hour. Most people go for around 30 minutes, but it's not, we don't, I don't have a stop, a exact stop in time. So, and I don't think anyone else here has. So, um, and regarding question, nobody can like people can raise questions or put questions somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, so we have two ways. We have the room chat, uh, which is, you can see it when you click all the way on the left, on the bottom, um, there's like a little speech bubble. When you click on that, you see the room chat. Oh, okay, open social chat, okay. There. Uh, so people can post questions there or they raise their hand and then uh, people can come up here and ask a question and i'll when people do raise their hand i'll bring them up you don't have to um, take care of it so okay that makes sense 
Hi, Katerina. Hi. Uh, hi, Dr. Singh. Uh, very interesting research. Thank you so much for you know sharing with us. So somehow uh, I'm using, I'm opening your uh, shared documents uh, on the PC, on a laptop, uh, but uh, it says no preview available. File is in owner's trash. I don't know. It's just my. Oh, then. Uh, huh. I does anyone else have the promise of serum? Can you try oh, to? I cannot the... see to see either actually. Yeah. Oh, you right. can. Let me no. okay. Let me go and check uh, how I did the settings. I thought I changed it to everyone can see. Uh, no, I know. I think. It's oh, you. I maybe I forgot with this one. You sent me an updated. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, one second. Yeah. Uh, let me let me fix. Thank you, Frank, for uh, pointing that out. I appreciate it. Oh sure. I mean, the slide looks like beautiful. Yeah. Just go there. Okay. Okay, how about now? Is it is it working now? Everyone? It should be working now, but please let me know if that's not the case. Yeah, I can see the slides. Okay, good. That was it works fine. Okay. Yeah. Works great for me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I forgot to do that for the updated slides, so I'm sorry about that. Yeah, so um, usually how we do that is um, I will introduce you to the audience. I give them a short introduction about your bio and then we will ask a more general question if that's okay. I think it's really interesting for people to know how people became scientists, uh, if it's like something that during, during their life like made them be interested in it or if that's okay with you we'll ask that question first oh yeah of course yeah sure sure of course that's not a yeah. problem thank you and then and then it's your presentation and then we'll open up for questions so sure okay good so <clears throat> i think we can slowly start and um with the with the introduction and then we'll go from there. So uh, thank you everyone for coming. Um, we are very honored to have our guest speaker, Dr. Prashant Singh here. And um, let me give you a little bit of background information. So um, to introduce the speaker to you, um, Dr. Prashant Singh is um, a scientist in the Division of Material Science and Engineering at the Ames Laboratory, Iowa State University. He um, earned his PhD in physics with a 
focus on computational material science from the University of Calcutta um, at the Bosa National Center for Basic Science India in 2013. And Dr. Singh's in research interest ranges from the development to application of density functional theory and machine learning based methods for design and discovery of complex materials. He worked as a postdoc at the Ames Laboratory, where he focused on the developing um, development of linear response theory for characterizing short range order in chemically complex alloys. Um, following the postdoc, um, Dr. Um, Singh joined the Ames Laboratory as a staff scientist and he has received prestigious funding from the Department of Energy, including Advanced Research Project Agency um, Energy and Advanced Manufacturing Office AMO and Laboratory Directed Research and Development. So we are very honored to have you here. And um, would anyone, Cecilia, would you like to ask like the, the introductory question to Dr. Singh? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, hello, Dr. Singh. Um, so I would like to ask you, um, how do you become interested in science? Like what were the driving factors and like how did your journey into becoming a scientist, how did it go? So actually, yeah, so it goes long. I will not say it goes very long back because when I was in my master's, till then I think I was thinking about doing a job. But during that time, uh, it was around uh, 2007-8 when I... Uh, met one of the very leading scientists of India where he was talking about he, he is a, he was a theoretical scientist and having some interest in materials and he was talking about his journey why he, instead of going for well-paying jobs in industries why he come to research so the idea was you can actually strive on your ideas right you can you can play with them you can every day is a new challenge for you However, in normal, if you go day-to-day -day job, you don't have that challenge. You are doing a same type of work. I will not say everywhere, but I think that's what I perceived when I was young. And I thought I, I was really curious to uh, maybe do more, discover something new, which is not known yet. And, and, and being the condensed matter science or materials science as a background, I think this is the best area to go and explore what else I can do. And this is what actually, actually his words that what made him to leave the industry and come and join the basic science research made me like thrive for doing research. And that's how I decided. And then I appeared for all India exams where you have to come within 100, 200 ranks to secure a position. And I think I was lucky enough to crack it. And, and then my journey started and here is here I am now to doing maybe more useful research at this point. Wow, that sounds really fascinating. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think as scientists, curiosity is one thing that we all carry. <laughs> right. And also the pursuit of knowledge. Yeah, the pursuit of knowledge and discovery. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, and, and I think to just add this, and uh, being in maybe material science and when you are talking about atoms at the level of angstrom right our nanoscale reason 
where you cannot see it, but being a com computational guy, like it's, uh, you can handle or try to uh, uh, design or explore any idea it comes into your mind without putting too much of cost burden. Yes, there is a time burden, but I think you can develop your programs and code and test in laboratory and computers and see what you are getting based on your initial hypothesis. And once you are sure that your hypothesis is really matching with the physical ideas or natural laws, then you can go and talk to your experimental colleagues and discuss that, oh, it's really what you think, what made you excited, excited about, and that can be proved in real life or not. And I think that's make it more exciting that you can design some problem, test in computer, and you know some physical laws that it satisfies, and then you go to lab and see by yourself that, oh, it really works. And that, I think, the best part of a researcher's life, that if your ideas get proved. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, it does, it does feel really good to be contributing to science and knowledge. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Katerina, I pass it back to you. Oh, yeah, uh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, actually, Dr. Prashant uh, Singh, please uh, go ahead with your presentation. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. And I would like to thank Katerina and his team members for inviting, and especially for kind introduction in the beginning and useful question, which I maybe not thought too much that to share that how I came to research it's like not not we don't think too often that right so okay so today I will be talking about uh, our recent work which is uh, physics based analytical models for design of new uh, rarers so here we actually explore rarers but machine learning or computation are in general like system agnostic so you can test any material you are interested in and the codes are with, for this uh, specific work are open source so people can go and check and uh, do their own research with this. And I would like to thank my collaborators from Texas A&M and Ames Laboratory. And the research was funded by Laboratory Directed Research Development Program at Ames Lab, which is the initiative of Department of Energy. So coming back to the idea why why we started thinking about rare earths and why so much hype at the, at the moment, the reason was that uh, Currently, there is a big gap between the supply chain. The reason behind is that the control on the rarers has moved from, which was equally divided between the US and China, has moved to Asia now, which is 98% control. So here we are looking for energy security and the, and the national security and where people are trying to replace rarers slowly, not abruptly, because it's difficult to do that. So that was the main basis to see where the, is the gap in the supply chain and how we can using data-driven science, we can address this. So first question is for a general audience is what actually are rare earths? So if you see in the periodic table, so there are 15 in the block 3B, in the slide number two, block uh, 3B of the transition metals actually belongs to both rare earth elements, which are divided into light, and heavy. If you see lanthanum to uh, samarium, they are categorized as a liked rarers. And beyond that, they are very heavy. And the, that reason make them more costlier because they are very difficult to process. So light elements are very easy to get. 
easier i will say not very easy but easier and then the rest of them like from europium to dutatine they are very expensive because it's very difficult and rare to find in the nature so 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 there comes a one question very in the beginning why radars are put outside the periodic table and the the same there is no science behind it actually because i think this was the scientific reason that every people like every scientist wants things to look symmetric and nature also prefers symmetry so if you see that lanthan if you put all the lanthanides there it will the periodic table look, look very odd just to make it symmetric and little bit uh, clean looking just lanthanum lanthanide series was moved uh, below the periodic table and there was no science behind it so important property or characteristics of radars most of them exist in 3d valence like 3 plus oxidation state exception with the exception of cerium and uh, europium which has 4 plus and 2 plus valency so if you see now since all the elements are in 3 plus valency it suggests that they should have similar chemical property and that is the case actually so all of the elements except cerium 4 plus and europium 2 plus they have a similar looking behavior chemical and physical uh, and the reason just to go back to the rare earth why we really call them rare earth uh, is the reason goes long back to the uh, history 1940s at that time like processing condition for the scientists was not very well known even if they were well known it was very difficult and the reason what why rare earth stands out and rare because they are not found same as iron and nickel or cobalt which are which found in clusters and because of geochemical reasons they are scattered and very dispersed all over the earth crust so that difficulty in extracting those elements was given the name is rare earth like these days it's become slightly easier but it still is very difficult to uh, get from the so easy than other uh, elements from earth so uh, so what about the application why rare earths are so much talked about and what is important about them so if you see although uh, just to uh, one uh, outline rare earths mostly used as a magnet in some space uh, most of the devices although they are not eight into size ratio they are very small, uh, magnets used in either in cars or your your computers or in communication or your electric bulbs but the they make it very important component because if you just give you just to give you an example take a example of our daily uses computer or laptop so they use spindle uh, uh, motors and wise coils if you just remove them your laptop and desktops are useless you cannot use them anymore so you can see although they are very small but their uses uh, the they are very in like critical component of each device you use like in car they you use magnet uh, to control your audio and different softwares what you control the the car system driving system in defense like satellites in if you go to the our very like house in your house the, all the fluorescent bulbs they use cerium as a component and it's impossible to get the efficient light or modern efficient light sources without use of radars so you can see although they are very used in very small amount but they are very critical and just to give an example like more like you can say visual example if you see on the slide 
the phosphorus bulbs or the magnets inside the windmills, they are impossible to, like you cannot imagine even the windmills without having magnets. And you cannot, you cannot, they are useless and like for any uses. Similarly, the like screen of your smartphone or desktop or laptop or TV screens, they all use uh, rare earths. They are very small in weight, a very small amount, but they are necessary to make your devices or electronics uh, smarter. So you can see now the application is like a multitude of application anywhere. You can see a space, you can see of nuclear technology, you can think of your houses or any techn technical field. Everyone uses uh, rare earth and it's almost right now impossible to replace. And that's where it stands our work that why we wanted to do this work and why to use a specific approach. And before that, I will just discuss on slide four, just talking about the material space, giving you the idea how rich and how big is the material space. If you see, there are so many types of material, like starting from ceramics, polymers, composite, meta materials, smart materials, like whatever you want to name, every, there is a huge design space. And if you go, like 20 years back, if you are doing trial and error, it's almost impossible to uh, process or, or, or check the, which is the useful material and which is useful composition. And that is not cost effective at all. And I think that's where in the last 10, 20 years that scientists has made a stride that uh, how to do science in the modern time to accelerate the design and discovery. And to give you one more uh, example, material design when we talk about from atom to macro scale it takes almost 10 to 20 years when you start a research or conceived an idea and if it is successful it takes almost 10 to 20 years to that that discovery to go into the market in real uses so you can see and the most of the time cost comes from your trial and error because you are or experimentalists or theory people who are doing computational design, they're just doing trial and error using some basic like empirical laws and which hardly in real system applicable. And you can imagine now if we can reduce this time using some like smart ideas, like uh, that can be a really good and save both cost and time and accelerate the discovery of new materials, which are now almost getting uh, saturated if we just keep doing trial and error. And I think, I don't know if most of them, but I think machine learning is becoming so common word that almost all the people working in the, at least at the uh, college level, they understand what is machine learning. And just to give you an idea, machine learning, just explaining machine and learning. So you are working on computer and you have some previous information and you want to learn from that history, right? Just to go to like common sense, like for us, when we do make some mistakes in past and we, what we do as a human, if our brain is functional, we learn from that not to repeat that mistake. And I think at the computer level, now we have a large amount of data from experiments, which exist from 60, 45, 50 years. Now use that, whatever mistake we made, just learn from them and use that idea using smart algorithms to design a, or, or use that to process the data and see what we can get. And data can be anything for our application. So what I'm talking about the materials. So recently 
United States government has put it uh, through Department of Energy and National Science Foundation, they put an idea of material genome initiative. So what is the idea that collect all possible data that exists till now and apply data informatics, computational tools and experimental existing tools to improve the uh, human life in various ways by providing clean energy, national security, and then as well as training the next generation workforce. So this is the idea what right now is, I think uh, everyone is thinking to fulfill uh, some way at, at their level. And especially in the science, in the basic research, this is very hardcore, or, or you can say everyone is talking about that because the uh, governments of states and everyone is want to achieve some specific goals. And the goal is that discovering new material to replace current technologies to make enhance the efficiency of the materials. So on slide four, if you see number of materials are increasing exponentially or be very fast. And if they increase very fast, the time you need to understand them, it is also going to increase. So there should be, so that's the idea of genome, like uh, materials genome that optimize that time using some computational techniques so that although number of materials has increased, we should not exponentially increase the time that we need to identify the material or better say useful material. So, so what is the significant and impact of my work? So if you, number six, just to get, uh, give you a, one small brief idea, like a brief uh, overview. So database, as I talked about, that data is very important aspect of any materials discovery when you're talking about machine learning. And for example, I'm talking about rare earths and that is become more complex because they have, they are F block elements and the F electrons are very complex to handle using any quantum mechanical approach to generate data. Even experimentally, it is very difficult to control. It's very hard to design the material using the rare earths, what you intend to, because those F block elements, depending on what material or composition you change, they completely uh, have different properties. So starting getting a right database is very key. That's what we first achieved, I guess, I, will, I, will want, I would like to say, that we took some time to generate very high quality data and put them as a database. I think it is coming, going to come as an open source and we are going to provide it to everyone to use it. And then use a machine learning model to try to use that information and come up with a model which can accurately map what we started with. Am I like, are we able to do that or not? And then the final leg is, it is a machine algorithm. It has its approximation, it has its limitations. So until you really prove it and you have all the insights about it, you cannot claim that what machine learning says is right or wrong because ultimately it's machine. It can make error like humans. That's why machine needs to be combined with the human insights or maybe more natural insights, I will say, nature, like experiments are natural insights of it. And then quantum mechanical approaches, like one of them is density functional theory is very often used in, in materials design that has all possible natural interaction that element goes through when they form in nature or in experimental lab. So you can almost accurately or as precise as experiment, you can simulate them. And then if you find one-to-one -one correlation between those two, yeah, then I think your machine learning model is really good and it's working.
And that's, uh, I think, also the idea of genome, materials genome. They, they just don't want to do machine learning or, or computational tricks. They want to make a robust frameworks that can be sister or platform agnostic that anyone who's just starting, they can use it. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's uh, also going to be a future because you don't want human control in all aspects of material design. Just to uh, simplify uh, our approach and test the framework, we started with very simple uh, material, uh, or you can say crystal phase, and this is called MGCU2. Why MGCU2? Uh, because it is a very uh, common occurring uh, or representative rare earth uh, crystal phase. If you see in the slides, uh, slide seven figure, R stands for rare earth, M stands for any 3D, 4D, 5D transition metals, it, sometimes it can have uh, P-block elements as well. And they have, why we choose MGCU2? Because it is, uh, has cubic symmetry. And one of the, and cubic symmetry is a, one of the seven crystal systems occurs naturally in nature. And it is one of the highest symmetry structures. So that's why it makes your test your models or any ideas very, uh, easily rather than going on complex structures. But although the idea not was not to just do simple ones, just to test on simple one and we are doing on the more uh, complex structures now. So, okay, so uh, here along with the using simple crystal structure, our idea also was that uh, if you remember the title of the talk, it says the physics-based. Why physics-based? That See, most of the machine learning models are black boxes. You know the data, you fit it with algorithm, but you are interpretation is one thing that we are looking for as a scientist. We, we want to know actually wh why we are using certain model and what we are doing inside that affects my design. So what physics, so each material has specific elemental or atomic properties. And depending on what target property, I mean, the final property you are looking at, that has some dependence on those specific elemental properties. So if you can find out an analytical equation from machine learning that has those useful connections that will solve your problem that you can interpret your model, you know actually which specific atomic character is affecting which property. And based on that history or knowledge, you might not even need to do too much machine learning because you know actually the idea that, oh, how now in the phase space to move using that specific uh, analytical model or descriptor. And that's what the importance of descriptor, I will say, because they give you advantage of seeing what are you doing from machine learning, not just doing it. So if you see on slide eight, on the left-hand side, the phi is a function or feature space and the union of H is the operator, HM is the meaning, M is the meaningful. So meaningful operators operating on atomic features or you can say scaled atomic feature to represent that compound. And here, why I say meaningful or this algorithm says meaningful because you don't want to mess up with the units. Like you cannot make a equation where you are using energy with size 
or you don't want to use the electron count to use with the size. You don't want to mix the size with size square. So you want to use meaningful because this algorithm intelligently will discard any unmeaningful combinations that do not make physical sense. That is the one advantage you want to see that you don't want to always keep checking that, oh, you are not making mess of units. And if you do it, then you cannot interpret your data or model. And so, okay, so, so this descriptor-based analytical approach is called CISO. Here, CIS stands for uh, SEO independence screening of features. So, so what CIS does, it takes all the features and assign them a metric, you can say correlation, and magnitude of the target property you are looking to map multiplied by that specific correlation factor, that gives you a score or relevance factor. And according to that, that, that algorithm, rank your features you got out of billions of features. Okay, or give me, let me give you a little bit more idea. So if you have H, say five, and you have the five or features as 10, the there, how they are related is H is two to the power N minus one, two to the power two and two to the power N minus one. And features are two, feature to the power two to the power N. So if you take 10 H, sorry, uh, features and five, operators like meaningful operators like and these operators can be plus minus multiplication division exponential a logarithmic any meaningful algebraic operation you can think of that can be h of m so if you just 5 and 10 your feature space goes to 10 to the power 11 so you can imagine how big feature space you are dealing with and if you do not have the smart uh, algorithm to rank or sort you, your computer will blow up and you may not be able to get anything out of it. So that is the advantage of SIS, why uh, this, this algorithm uses SIS and SO is a sparsifying operator. So what it does, once you have that feature, meaningful feature space, it mixes based on the ranking of SIS, it mixes and matches each descriptor and then provide you an optimal descriptor that is able to map your target property within the well within the defined delta. So this delta on slide nine, slide eight, is the tolerance within which your descriptor will be taken as a good or bad. And this is then you get the descriptor. After you get all the operations, you get the descriptor. And I don't want to read what the advantages of it. You can see as I think almost I discussed each aspect of uh, uh, this. Uh, as I discussed in the that, uh, previous slide 8 and slide 9, if you see on the left, you can see uh, uh, how this overall methodology of CISO, SURE, independence, screening, sparsifying operator method works. So feature space, you have, a, for example, elemental properties. They can be any property you can think of meaningful physical properties or electronic or thermodynamic property of material you can choose. And then you can construct a weighted average of those properties to represent that specific compound or combination of elemental 
other elemental properties. And then H of M that I showed in the last slide ha has the, those actually uh, op algebraic operations. So you can choose based on your time, your accuracy you need, and that will decide how much effort or computational cost you are going to put. And so that's, I think that's the one, one I will say uh, caution to use and decide how many operations or how many properties or how many elemental features you want to start with. And then next come how CISO works actually. And the same thing I think uh, I explained before that used, if you just think you start with the one dimension. So in one dimension, you do not have many choices. So correlation is checked between each elemental feature, not or elemental or weighted average features. And the CIS will assign them a rank. And based on the best ranking or delta tolerance, your uh, model or your machine learning uh, will, uh, algorithm or approach will choose the one dimensional descriptor. For n dimensional descriptor, you have n minus one feature space that you constructed. So now when you go to sparsifying operator after constructing the billions of features, based on ranking now, the SO will do the union of, do the union of all features from up to N minus one dimension. And from there it will re-rank all of them for you, depending on how many iterations you choose on the on feature construction. And that's why it is very become very important to decide on which dimension you want to choose. And this also decides your computational cost. And I think that is very important that you know your problem, what you are doing. And if you choose like you want to go for 10 dimension, I think that's really uh, not meaningful because if you're not able to converge some properties or not able to map any property up to three or four dimensions, it's very difficult you are going to do 10 on 10 dimensions. It's like a, it's like a limit, like math versus physics, where math has no limit, but when you go and apply something in physics, on physical system, you have to limit your constraint and do everything under a limit so that you do not overfit or underfit the model or your uh, computational uh, time or cost everything like you have to keep each aspect in mind when you do computational design. So on slide 10, uh, I'm showing some results from training now. So here, so, so what our idea was, we were trying to find out the most stable compound or new compound or new composition or new phase. And the target for when you want to find something which is stable energetically, thermodynamically, you look for Gibbs formation enthalpy. That's a Gibbs energy which is, tells you if it is negative, below zero, it tells you that your system is going to be stable and you can try experimentally. If it is positive, it tells that your system is unstable, you should discard it. And again, this depends on how accurate Gibbs energy data you started from. If you are taking from experiment, so you can be sure that what you are predicting, it may be very close to what reality. When you start from computational data or 
high, like even quantum mechanical data, when some numbers come be, are close to zero, you should be care careful to reinterpret because that small deviation is very possible when because even highly accurate approaches use approx some approximation to approximate the energies or gives gives energies and 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 moreover in in quantum mechanical approaches all the all the numbers are done at zero kelvin considering zero kelvin so that can be very different from reality at when you do at room temperature or a high temperature calculation so in spite of that rarers are very uncommon uh, in terms of existing database so it was our own creation from modeling and based on that we were able to achieve if you see the training data the accuracy we got nearly 70 percent for rare earths it was very good because those i talked about the f block elements are very uh, spurious in nature like they do not let you uh, do the calculation very accurately. There are so many parameters you need to optimize in order to get one number. And that almost took us generating the 500 points almost six months because of that trial and error. So you can see that why the database for rare earths is, universal database is important because this is very critical to get. And once you have it, the design will become really, very easy for the future, uh, future uh, material design using rare earth components. So when you go to the uh, cross validation, it's always uh, the accuracy drops, but it's not too low. If you do 70 and you are able to uh, achieve 64% uh, or you can say 0 0.64 R square value. And that is that is not too bad in terms of uh, when I will call uh, this a rare earth. And now if you go and see the descriptor type of descriptor and the features you see here. So first one, First coefficient, and since it's three dimension, so you can see the three components, one, two, and three. Top, bottom, and the middle. So in the top you see BM stands for bulk modulus. EA stands for electron affinity. Density is electronic density of that specific compound. AN is the elect, uh, atomic number. IP is the first ion adjacent potential. And standard deviation in the bulk modulus. So what it represents is, Bulk modulus, so now I want to just explain it a little bit. So bulk modulus is the representation of the stiffness of material. So stiffness depends on the how the electron are distributed or shared among the alloying elements. So when you have bulk modulus very high, it means the atoms are covalently bonded or the, and they are sharing electrons, like they have a strong overlap, means the cloud, electron cloud is shared and they have directionality in them. And that's why if you see, it should have actually the direct relation with the stability of the material. And you see the first ranked element is the bulk modulus. Then comes the electron affinity. Again, electron affinity is the, uh, uh, the elements uh, uh, characteristic to take electron, how, how, how quickly it is ready to uh, take electron. For example, if you go to the halogens, they immediately want to uh, get one electron and complete the octet, and that's why they are very reactive. They always just ready to take. Same as the alkali metals, they are ready to leave, give one one electron because they are so reactive. They just want to leave and become stable. So uh, density again, density is electronic density, so it relates atomic number, ionization potential, every proper feature you are seeing here directly connects to the 
electronic feature that can affect the stability. So if you see now and trying to analyze why formation enthalpy or stability of a compound directly connects to electron counts, you can see with the features and you can directly interpret them. And that's why when you are doing some physics-based design, knowing what you are doing is very important and that lets you to understand because you know the mechanical properties of each element, you know the electron count, you know the Anderson potential, and now you can use some specific statistical features or statistical uh, equations to just quickly uh, scan them and see that, oh, which direction in the uh, feature, uh, like compositional space you need to move and where can be the best alloy in terms of stability. And that can be make, can be made in the laboratory frame. So this was about three dimensional uh, descriptor. Next one is a four dimensional descriptor. If you see why I am showing it here, because if you see going from three dimension to four dimension, the time cost is almost double, but you see, accuracy is not increased. That's what I was saying, that we need to choose our descriptor very wisely what the dimension we want to choose. As you increase with dimension, the accuracy does not change too much. Only change is your time. You, your, your uh, feature space goes billions of billions of combinations. So your computer has to perform so many calculations into order to figure out first the ranking. And then sparsifying those operators will need to do all union of combination of those features to find out one best descriptor or ranked two, three, four, five descriptors. And if you see here, again, in the four dimension also, you see the similar type of uh, atomic uh, features on slide 11 that directly relates to stability of compound. And that signifies that we are able to capture the meaningful features that possibly can be tuned in real life in design point of view to achieve uh, a stable alloy. And it means how to do it actually. So I'm not saying that you can just without machine learning you can do it, but I'm saying you can see it if you do not, you are not able to do the machine learning quickly, then you can use the existing models and existing ideas to test few composition based on this uh, equation. And slide 12 shows you uh, uh, the frequency, I mean that in what frequency each feature appears for the given, given descriptor dimension. So in the left is a three-dimensional descriptor, in the right, in the four-dimensional descriptor. If you see, these are the five bulk modulus, electronegativity, ionization potential, electron affinity, and valence electron. And most of them are directly, direct, have direct connection to the uh, uh, stability. And if you go and scan uh, some literature, you can find these features are direct one-to-one uh, uh, -one correlation they should have with the stability. And that's what the model, tr model training shows us based on uh, the database what we used. So, so, okay, so here on slide 13, if you see the advantage of descriptor, what is the advantage of descriptor, which I already discussed that Against the black box nature of most machine learning model, I will say just one point is neural net. You can just keep uh, tuning neural net. You can have interpretable uh, 
PDE, you can have specific, vary the hidden layers, you can vary the uh, neurons. So you don't know how you are doing it and why you are doing it. So you just keep doing it until you get a best model that fits your data. But why it is fitting it, that until you have something physically known parameters, you cannot identify why it is happening. That's why we call them. The, so I'm not saying this is the only machine learning model that can do this. There are many other approaches like Lasso and other who you provide you descriptor-based approaches. But there are pros and cons. So pros is that you can interpret it. You can extrapolate because you know what you are extrapolating. And the biggest advantage of this is you need a very optimal database size and you still you will get the accuracy of the best known machine learning models. So, so I want to just put sums up in the one line as also present in the slide 13 that the, this analytical nature of the CISO algorithm allow you to curtail the dimensionality to a very practical reason, regime where you don't need to go overboard to check all the billion operators. Just once you rank them, you can just combine, combine using some uh, optimize, 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 optimizing algorithms and you have just only one, one equation. You don't have to solve now 10,000 equations to get a right kind of model. So our application was basically on, uh, in the training, it has all kinds of rare earth based elements. On slide 14, I'm showing the left-hand side, uh, the CISO model trained with 660 data points. And the previous one was actually done on the less number of data points. So here we divided the data into 18 to 20 for tests like uh, training and cross-validation. And for test purposes, we just use the three or five data points. And here I'm showing the three of them in the left-hand side marked in red. And those three were uh, synthesized in, in, uh, in the laboratory. Although they are not in perfect form, and it, but if you see, they form indeed the C, uh, if you see cerium Fe75, Cu25, but they are not the single phase. Otherwise, the reason is iron and copper, if you do electronic analysis or from quantum mechanical analysis, they usually do not want to mix. It means, they, the reason is their electronegativities are very close. So it means they, they do not want to share electrons with each other. So, so if there is no electron sharing, they don't want to sit together with each other. And, and, and that's what I discussed just before, that how important it is to correlate with the electron count with any quantity of interest. If there is no correlation with the electron count or electronic behavior, then it's almost impossible to make any compound in nature. So that, that's one thing, uh, our, our interpretation I will say, one need, needs to keep in mind that for design perspective, while doing machine learning, we should also use some uh, common sense that which elements we want to mix based on just elemental ideas so that you don't have to waste your efforts, both theoretically, experimentally, or data informatics point of view. So on the slide 15, I'm just showing you uh, 
quantum mechanical analysis where it is called band structure if you see the dashed line on the top panel and bottom panel they are called the fermi level so in any system the electrons can only fill up to the fermi level so if you start from the left hand side a and b where copper is 0% it's like it is cerium iron 2 then you can see the band structure is very smooth there are no many bands on the fermi level it means the system is almost like pretty stable because there are no bands not too many stage edges on the band on the fermi level it means the system is stable that's quantum mechanically that's how it is analyzed the least number of bands or uh, peaks on the fermi level stabilized or you can say prevent electrons to hop too much and that gives the stability and now if you go to the middle panel when you have a copper 50 percent clearly band structure is complete uh, the upspin channel on in the c completely it doesn't look such a you know the in in in, in like a nature the band is like a compositionally seeing the natural phenomena inside the atom and doesn't that doesn't look beautiful actually so see, like a nature, even in calculation, you can seeing the data, you can understand that it is correct. It looks correct or odd. So you can see the band is so zigzag, they even doesn't make sense that it's, it can really be the band structure of a real material. And experimentally, if you see on the slide 14, you can see they do not want to mix. And that's what I said that copper, iron being the almost same electronegativity and similar uh, behavior chemical behavior they do not want to share electrons that's why whenever you try to make them in laboratory they just stay separate from each other although they coexist but they do not want to stick together on the same site and that gives a one proof of concept why in machine learning machine learning was predicting is very on the edge experimentally we are not able to synthesize it but if you see the peak in x-ray xrd or x-ray diffraction on the slide 14 the peaks are like moved from each other it means there are two phases exist in them and that validates the prediction quantum mechanical analysis uh, and that completely makes sense that why and why they are not mixing because of their specific electronic features and to summarize i i will say that when material space is really huge and when you add disorder to it it adds one extra degree of freedom to the element design and the design space become even much broader and bigger and that necessitates the importance of some smart ways to design materials and if you want to do with just by experiment or ab initio or quantum mechanical approaches it's like in trial and error it will be time now it's like you need more time and you have to invest more in terms of cost so you don't want to do that way like now there are machines they're very high performance computing resources so it's better to use smart ideas like machine learning to learn from the history of data and try to direct experimentalists or theory people who are do, doing hardcore theory, which area of those composition space to look. And I think machine learning combined with these quantum mechanical insights and experiments, setting up a loop that when you do experiments, you again 
actively let machine learning learn from those experiences what you feel in the direct from direct calculation on experiments to improve itself and that framework i think will be uh, i will say system agnostic you can use for any material any uh, type of properties and that is what what was the challenge and we were able to so by a proof of concept that it can be done for rare earths too which are very complex so with this i will want to share some uh, on slide 17 there are some uh, information about from go like uh, federal government and you can see the reports and what is the need and why rare earths are important and with this if you have some questions i will be ready to answer yeah, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation. It was, um, yeah, it was really great to um, to have that explanation, uh, at least for me. <laughs> thank you so much for that. And uh, yeah, if anyone has questions, please flash your mic and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, Serena, go ahead. Hi, uh, thanks. Fascinating um, presentation. A lot of work went into that. Um, I really appreciate uh, the uh, the treatment and the feature. I can, you know, in you know, there are times and probably still in many labs where you know any of those features may be the, you know, the sole product of a group and you know for an empirical fit over some data. So it's it's great to see a systematic treatment of how to combine these features for certain properties. Um, question on uh, so it's the database it, it's um, in prep in preparing the database these were density functional calculations of materials or did you also draw from experimentals or no, um, so it is purely based on density functional theory so the reason mm -hmm. was uh, for rarers there are hardly any experiments and the experiments if there are they don't have any uh, gives energy uh, measurements on them so that is what make them challenging that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you have to completely rely on first your uh, theoretical data that you did it right so you have to do very carefully in the beginning and then to prove that you were right after you design a model develop a model using the database you you, you created you go to the lab and see your predictions really match with it or not both with the new calculations and new experiments if it does, then of course, then I think you have some confidence in your idea and your model or your database. But if not, then it's need rethinking where or which thing has went wrong in that point. So it's like, I, I would say active learning now in, in sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, it can be problematic to get a consistent set of data with, you know, different experimental conditions and so forth. So it, it's a, you know, a, a, a data provenance issue um so i appreciate but that uh, that's that is quite a lot of calculation for density functional yeah so i just to add one point so here we only choose one type of material it is called like crystal phase is rx2 like chemistry is one is to two mm -hmm. we have done like one one is to one two is to one one is to two two is to five like that but when you start mixing those calculations since the rare earths the f block elements are so I will say nasty. Mm -hmm. You have to optimize each crystal phase with different parameters. And for that, you have to test against the existing experiment that you are making that right or not. 
So controlling those bands, if bands on the like partially filled bands on the Fermi level, that's the huge challenge. And I think that's the reason why not many people are attempting it. And that's, that's I will say, one mm -hmm. advantage we could ha have you had that Ames Lab actually is the one of the leading labs who only does expertise in rare earth. And the father of rare earths was known to be the Carl Snyder, who was from Ames Lab. He died two years back, but till that he was here and he was the one sole reason why Ames Lab is known for rare earths. Hmm. Um, yeah, I also wanted to applaud your, you know, uh, avoidance of actual neural networks because it is like, as you said, so critical to actually understand what what is being mixed into the features as for interpretability. Right. Um, very, very critical in this, certainly in this case for interpretive work and, right, and right. tuning. And when the material is as complex as rare earth or any other material, which is really complex electronically, I will say, like strongly correlated materials, like quantum materials. So they're also like those D block elements, like localized D bands, both near the Fermi level and somewhere like in, in between like near five, like minus five electron volt below the Fermi level, how weakly or strongly they affect due to the presence of the P bands of oxygen or other any elements, that critically difficult to, for machine learning to uh, really capture until you do very carefully the quantum mechanical calculation and you understand what you are doing is you are able to reproduce for other compositions then only you can claim you're right, but it's impossible mm -hmm. actually uh, to 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 do that kind of calculation. Mm -hmm. And I think and I think that's why people are going for machine learning to at least get something, some some meaningful approach that we don't have to this much do this much calculation. And so, have you been able to um, to uh, you know design other materials that have certain properties, you know, certain yeah, actually we are, yeah. So that's what the, we did some work after this actually, and we were able to uh, find some very critical properties which are very important now, maybe for application point of view. So maybe in coming future few months, I think that work should be come out and maybe I will share with Katrina to share with the network. Maybe you guys can have a look to that too. Yes, actually we, did. we, we found something, yes. Excellent, excellent. And yeah, you mentioned you were contemplating open sourcing the database at some point. Oh yeah, of course. Yes, very, in very near future, yes, very near future. Maybe sometime in uh, next few months, we are just planning to put everything on online. And it's a DOE, DOE's criteria also that you should make everything open source. So we have to do it at one point. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, Dr. Singh. Thanks, you know, uh, again, uh, for sharing this very interesting uh, uh, research combining material design and uh, machine learning. <clears throat> I have a, a, a question on the uh, the the SO part. So that's a uh, so from what I understand so far from the slides, I haven't been able to you know uh, do the homework uh, uh, before reading your paper before the um, the. Uh, so, from what I understand, it's it's the uh, the f there's two levels of features at least, right? So there's a, you started with uh, mathematical operators, and then you uh, <clears throat> try uh, uh, to uh, uh, that that will it's huge, right? So it, it can be very huge, and then you sparsify uh, them down to some uh, 
uh, meaningful uh, uh, quantities uh, like uh, you show on the uh, slides number 10. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I mean the, uh, sorry, uh, number 12, that uh, there's, there's a uh, uh, bulk uh, modulus and, you know, uh, and yeah, yeah. The, so the SO part is the, some uh, unsupervised learning algorithm that uh, do, doing fitting, or I mean, say you're, you have a target uh, function. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so it's a good question. So, so let me just uh, reiterate the point I made. So when you are using the CSO, if you go to slide, uh, slide number eight, first what we do, we create a specific, like depending on how you choose it, meaningful operators, and then you use the features, either scaled or elemental features, and then you use sys. What sys does, it find out the correlation of the elements with the target or features with the target. Depending on that feature, the magnitude of that correlation, you multiply each correlation factor for feature with the target property. And then sys ranks all the features in that order, the highest to the lowest. What SO does, suppose you are in three dimension, you have three iterations. I is, so you see, you see the equation union i is equals to n to n. Depending on how many dimensions you are test, if you go to i is equals to three, it means you are checking one dimension, two dimension, three dimension. So what the whole CSO will do, now SO will does, you it will take the combination of 1D, 2D, 3D space, feature space, and now base, now it will now redo the ranking because now 1D has different ranking, 2D has different ranking, 3D has different ranking features. So SO has to combine all of them and re-rank them and find out you are meaningful descriptor that is able to closely map your target property. For me, it was formation enthalpy. For you, it might be some mechanical behavior or some any other property like manufacturability. You want to predict of any material, right? Can you manufacture in the lab or can you print it in the lab or not? So, so depending on that, actually. So yes, SO does re-ranking depending on what is the dimension you are choosing for descriptor in CIS. So the dimension here is the number of uh, objectives functions that I'm the user are interested and in provide you to to True. I mean yes yes okay correct 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 I see so this is uh, interesting and then how does uh, machine learning algorithm this this interesting uh, architecture you propose here uh, can be generalizable to uh, not just rare earth. I mean, you you mentioned a few. Uh, you say only uh, binary, and uh, uh, would you be willing to share some thoughts on that? So, sorry, can you can you repeat? I I, I think I missed your question. Right, right. I so I, I was just asking how how general generalizable uh, this algorithm that you propose here to um, other system other than you know rare binary. Uh, oh, rare uh, oh. we have actually published two more works actually recently which are not rare earths. They are three-dimensional metals and they are completely different crystal structure. So it is generalizable. So see, any machine learning model is, okay, let me go more like a lighter side. Machine learning models are data hungry, right? Whatever data you will provide and based on your accuracy, if you like, in general, people at scientific community use the garbage in, garbage out. 
if you provide the bad data, you will get the bad results. You will have the bad interpretation and we will not understand we are interpreting the bad results from bad data. If you have a good results, that's called experimental, I will say true, true data set. I take the experiment as a truth level. So for that, you, your machine learning is going to be really good results, good, uh, good correlation, good probability predictions. And you will have, your interpretation will be in agreement with the experiments because you are starting for the true model, true data. So it is, this machine learning is generalizable to any property we have done for mechanical properties, we have done for thermodynamics, even we have done for uh, like uh, for materials where you want to design a, a strength in a material. And a strength is very complex because it depends something other than actually uh, electron count. So strength is the how material sears, like there are sear, sear plane in each each crystal structure depending on which crystal structure you are talking about. So how that sear can be controlled to give the better strength or better material property. And that one thing is key, suppose in steel, that is a very key proper parameter if you want to design a very high class steel. And we were able to say that, like able to show that you actually can achieve that if your data, starting data points is, is very good. And that's what we did there. That we use very accurate DFT model, we generate data, we validated with the experiments, and then we just refeed that data to the same CISO model, and we were able to predict 10 new compositions, and then actually that paper, next paper is, might be coming out, where we use that prediction to go and lab, and test the material, and project that strength and everything, and that comes out one-to-one -one in agreement. Uh, that's uh, very interesting. I will definitely, you know, go uh, follow the, the literatures and, uh, you know, uh, learn more of the, uh, the, the details. But uh, at this point, so you're, you're saying your work so far is built on the DFT, right? So the, so for, for, for it's, it's a, essentially limited by what a DFT can offer in, in the sense the, you know, the, um, Hartree-Fock, you know, the... Uh, no, the... yeah, so actually, yeah, Hartree-Fock is a very old approach, like, I will say, uh, different one. So we are using uh, more modern, or you can say, in between the modern and the old uh, exchange correlation. That's a, see, any DFT approach, exchange correlation is a very important factor. That how you are going to interpret your property or how good property you are going to calculate. So we use the GGA, and in GGA, we use the PBE, it's like called Purdue, Burke, and Arjunov uh, exchange correlation. It is not Hartree-Fock. Hartree-Fock only based on the orbital, is uses orbitals, uh, just density. And here, and that is very expensive also, as I said, because when you use orbital as a basis, it's very expensive to calculate. And that's why people, uh, when they do machine learning, they do not do very highly high fidelity DFT calculation. It's like called DMFT. If you do that, then actually you don't need to machine learning because that is the highest accurate possible uh, quantum mechanical calculation. And most of the time it is very accurate and you almost get what experiment does, says. But you don't have that, if you do that calculation, then why you have to do machine learning? What is the use of it? So I want a approximate trend in machine learning that I may not get the actual value of it. So, but if I start 
I draw a slope predicted by machine learning, I should be able to achieve that difference in prediction versus actual value. So if difference is constant, it automatically cancels out and you are getting the right trend. So accuracy is important, I will say, but if you go too high in accuracy in DFT, then you are killing both time and the motive of using machine learning. So that's why in the beginning I said that we need to be very intelligent or very smartly choose that we are able to reproduce some of experiments using the medium fidelity approaches in DFT and then try to do machine learning. So it, it will make a high throughput framework that, that will be generalizable to all. I see. So this, uh, the, you're setting the, the goal as a, a high throughput, you know, uh, uh, low cost, and then uh, usable mostly in the scenario that uh, explore for new uh, uh, material. Yes. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. So we already have the framework, actually. So the idea is, once you find out the reason, what is the best reason to explore, right? Then you can do as accurate as, as many as accurate calculation you want. Because now you know this is the best reason to explore. You can choose 10, 15 cal calculations and do as many high fidelity calculations or quantum mechanical calculation or experiments because you know this is the reason where I should be because all aspects and analysis and trends suggest towards me to go this direction. Yes, so in that sense, yes. I want to start from the, some like, uh, mid-range accuracy and then slowly increase it when I am very close to my uh, target property. I see. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so I, I will, you know, uh, that, I mean, I have a more question, but I'll save for, for later. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, you can email me or if you very specific questions. Park? Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for the room and uh, appreciate you uh, doing this. I'm not a geologist by any means. Uh, and my knowledge of uh, metals and rare earth compounds is limited to my exposure in uh, inorganic chemistry during my college days and beyond. Now, but I have a more uh, uh, on a related note. Um, how is this technology? Does it, this is if this is all this is all very fascinating if if this is applied in real time i have two parts of a question how does it don't you think countries will be on a mad scramble to get hold of something like this because rare earth compounds are are a big deal when it comes to a nation's resources number one number two uh, when when you when one looks at uh, something like the moon or the mars how will this kind of a technology help in not just uh, finding new rare earth compounds, but also other uh, uh, elements uh, of uh, that particular uh, geological uh, systems in other planets. I don't know if my question is even appropriate, but I, it just came to my mind. Thank you. No, I think I think this is a. Uh, I think uh, I somehow missed your first question. Uh, maybe you can repeat later. But in the second question, uh, I think the cost you are going to put to explore the other planets may not be feasible enough to do that right yes there are there are there are uh, chances that we can explore once we develop get new materials and new material class but I, I think the maybe it's not it's not really worth economically or 
cost it's not cost going to be cost effective but yes materials are like wearers are really very critical and everyone is like each country or economy depends on it because if you think any electrical technology you are using currently the key components are from wearers you cannot yet we are trying to find out the a permanent magnet that does not have a rare earth content the reason is the even if you find somebody finds one at high temperature or at real operating conditions they do not survive the reason is their anisotropy is so low with temperature they die out and the rare earth has the strongest robust magnetic behavior or property and yes if you somebody can find some resources then all the countries are going to uh, head and catch anywhere and it is it is key so can you repeat your first question i think i i just uh, missed the first no no, no first question is far more trivial than the second the first question was to do with you know uh, countries have gone to war over uh, resources like rare earth compounds so how will this technology uh, you know you know this is not a scientific question at all so whoever is developing this technology will pro probably have the upper hand in uh, ha ha having the resources to find these compounds uh, much before than the others, much so right, earlier right, than the right. others. Yeah. So if I comment on this, like on lighter side, lighter means not too technically, uh, technical, not too technical side. Then I will say that right now everybody is looking for less critical materials. So the reason is the less critical materials are so so. Right now, we are everyone is going through global war, global warming, right? And critical materials, the processing and the cost, it it hampering the nature. Wherever you are exploring the rare earths, they are so scattered. You have to put put multiple, like like I would say, order of magnitude more effort than you have to do on less critical materials. So on that and over current situations, nobody wants to do that. And that's why I think every every country I don't know every, every science community in each every country they're trying to go and hunt for a material which does not have a error because it's very difficult to get and it is like not easy to extract. That's why it is called rare. And right now, yes, only one, like ninety percent of rare earths comes from China. So you can see the supply chain issues in e whole all over the world. And if it it can cause a war, actually, I don't know. I'm just I'm not sure, but yes. If somebody gets some te technology to create it, yes, it can be useful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, Eric, did you have a question? Or oh, Adrian, you just joined. Do you want to ask a question? No questions at this time. Thank you. But interesting. Uh, I just uh, I feel like I don't even know where to start. So. Yes, Katarina, thank you. I joined a little late here, but uh, uh, the, the doctor alluded to this is actually happening right now. Countries are, this is why Russia, one of the many regions Russia is invading Ukraine is for the rare earth met, uh, metals. But my question, and pardon the background noise, are there any particular sensors that we can outfit or, or you know, to, to locate on a large scale these uh, rare earth minerals, perhaps some ground penetrating radar or some specific sensor that we can locate these metals. No, so, so see, as I think I pointed out in the beginning, 
the problem with the rare earth why they are called rare earths that you do not find get the rares in the clusters it's like a you get iron copper nickel you can dig a place and you can find almost uh, tons of iron or nickel or cobalt but rare earths are so scattered that puts the so much cost in them and that's why even if you have a radar or sensor you can find it maybe you have to have dig in several miles or hundreds of miles to get a meaningful amount of rare earth or a specific element and they are so reactive they oxidize oxidize easily that makes them more sensitive and difficult to extract and the the valence electron counts if you just leave the f electrons they are pretty close and they mixed wherever they are they mixed in two three of them together and again it it costs you more to extract them from each other so there are so many levels of complication even if you have a sensor the post processing is the most difficult or challenging part in rare earth than finding the mines of rare earths yeah it's Thank worth you, doctor yeah it's worth commenting that one of the one of the greatest applications of this technology would be replacing the rare earths and not needing them as much by finding materials that that don't you know give us the properties that we need for the electronics devices and all the magnets and so forth without having to you know build them with these rare earth elements in the first place right absolutely yes that's why everyone is looking for that but the again uh, the point is rare earths has a very strong anisotropy in their structure and that's there is natural trait and most of the normal elements they are very symmetric in crystal, crystal structure and that hampers the and, and that's a very important characteristic if you want to have a very uh, this is specific anisotropic anisotropy in material and that stands the rare earth apart from anyone any any material useful magnetic material in the periodic table so you have to mix so many of elements together to order to get the right uh, anisotropy and then with temperature they quickly die but rare earth are so robust they even survive at higher temperatures so so i'll say is yes it is the need of the hour that's why focus is on that and if somebody finds it that will be a, the best uh, discovery in terms of replacing the current state of the art Yeah. Are there any more questions? Uh, we went over an hour, so I wanted to check in with you. It's one hour and fifteen minutes. Um, uh, Dr. Shah, uh, yes, very quick question, uh, and thank you so much for the fascinating presentation. My question is about the challenging that you had. Um, you just explained about the temperature and the thermodynamic stability. So I was just wondering, because you selected randomly based upon whatever you explained, and what was that ground state from the element that you just picked? Because in the, when I'm just taking a look over the diagram versus the information that you put it there, I was just wondering, is that, uh, I mean, I know that the system is at equilibrium, right? Yes. Am I right? Right. And what about the free energy when we want to consider it from the element that you just have it out of the equation? Yeah, so free energy, actually, if you just interpret the uh, plot on 
page 10, 11 or 14. So free energy is at some temperature, right? So this is a free energy at zero Kelvin. So when when you write down thermodynamic equation, so there is a T delta S term, right? Where is entropy comes in, right? So that entropy part is ignored because that contribution, maximum contribution to entropy when with temperature is roughly around 18 milli electron volt. That comes from, if it is ordered, then mostly it comes from vibration or light lattice contributions. Electronic is very minimal, so you can, uh, it's already included in DFT calculations, but with temperature you can ignore it because it's not too high a contribution. So mostly if you see the, the, the magnitude of the free energy here, at the room at the zero Kelvin is around like mostly around minus 0 0.5 to 1.5 electron volt. So if you add positive 80 milli electron volt per atom is like 0 0.080 or even 0 0.10, 100 milli electron volt, then also your trend will remain same. You are not going to have absolutely positive. And also I made a comment in the beginning that if any number in DFT calculation are near zero, they definitely can get affected. So there we have to be careful and recalculate after the prediction that what we did with more accurate calculation is coming out true or not. So yes, free energy is very important criteria. And actually if you, uh, in 20, last year, 2021, we published one, in, one paper in Nature where we saw actually uh, this uh, contribution from uh, the, uh, uh, vibrations are not too strong to when your energy free energies are very too like very low like minus when it's order of electron volt then you don't need to worry too much of phase change but yes you have to put all possible phases together and see with increasing those 80 milli electron volt change may cause the phase competition like here I choose only MGCU2 phase. But there can be one different phase which can get activated at 500 Kelvin. And you are right that there, that part we need to be careful about. And the, I, I also say that next paper what, where we found some interesting ideas and, and, and properties for one of the questions, there we have considered all possible structures, competing structures with free energy and whatever is lowest at given temperature that is going to play a dominating role. Yeah, because the entropy that you just explained, that was the point that I got yes. it. Because yeah, it's still yeah. the formation will be so lesser than the correct. I mean that's yeah, why yeah. I decided it's like a convex that about the free energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so actually we have developed a program where you can once you have machine learning model, using that model you can create a convex hull using all possible phases. And whatever phase falls on that convex hull line, you draw for all possible phases for that composition range. You can choose with temperature, whichever is not obeying that, that, obeying that uh, line of convex hull and then ignore everything else and then try or believe in them, in, in those structures. So it's never happened that you make it unstable and then stable again. Yeah. I mean. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to check, yeah, competing phases, all of them at finite temperature. Thank you. For sure.
Yeah, thank you so much for for this. Um, I wanted to ask if you you said already that this model, like um, your model, will be also applicable for other uses. Um, are you planning, or do you think that um, this will also be useful for biomedical material discoveries for different? Um, maybe delivery methods uh, of drugs and, and other um, biomedical applications? I, I uh, see, I, I'm not expert of biomedical and I'm, I, I surely not, I'm not the expert of what factors affect the deli drug delivery inside the body. But I know that some, there are discussion like, I don't know, from MIT, the, Dr. Langer's group, they have done, developed some macromolecules. They, they, like, they are magnetic, right? So like magnetic beads. So yes, their magnetic properties can be whatever is the critical magnetic property or magnetic magnitude of magnetic movement or magnetic behavior is key for drug delivery that do not interfere the body. I think that those things can be trained and find out that if some molecules satisfy the criteria, they can be used in the beat for drug delivery. If not, they cannot be. So I'm not sure. I'm just saying this. I'm just making it up based on that maybe just layman's knowledge but yes it can be done if you have a data for that yeah i think that's it yeah go ahead Sarin. i was just going to add to that um it, you know if you could design the base material with the right properties uh, there's there's a number of chemistries to derivatize the surface that, to make it more biocompatible but getting the you know getting those base materials with the right properties is um, is, is kind of the hard part there. Yeah, as long as there is a resonance exists, they can have a use in the nano, I mean, medicine and nanoparticle part. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this amazing work and also for sharing your, um, your knowledge and, you know, um, your approach with us uh, we're really thankful for this and uh, yeah i learned a lot so thank you so much and i think all of us learned some <laughs> some more today so. yeah and um, yeah feel always free to come back <laughs> to sure yeah, maybe yeah, yeah with next work we can maybe talk about that in a few months or after Whenever it comes, I think I can just email you and see if we have interest to talk. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Yeah, your work is so interesting. It would be very interesting to get updates and and follow up. So, um, yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, and thank you everyone for coming and asking great questions and listening. And, um, yeah, um, please um, come back if you like... Um, presentations like this uh, we'll have uh, more coming up this week so uh, follow the club and follow here uh, Dr. Prashan Singh uh, for when he gives his next talk here then you get the notification so <laughs> thank you all and um, enjoy the rest of your day or evening or morning wherever you are and uh, thank you everyone thank you thanks everyone
Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks Thank so, everyone, so much. Thank and thanks, Persha and then Karina for this excellent. And for the next one, I'll definitely do the homework. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank, you, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I should share the Discord uh, link next time because there I sent the papers also out. So, um, yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye.